Howdy, folks. Welcome to the show. We appreciate you tuning in to TGC Midweek, where we take your questions, we do our best to answer them, and uh, occasionally we say something insightful. Most of the time, we just kind of <laughs> ramble, though. Jacob McCandless, Michael Novak. Michael, what's going on, man? How's your week? Oh, it's going pretty good. Yeah. Nobody else I'd rather ramble with than you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. We got um, an interesting question coming in this week. Um, let's dive right into this one. This question is all about... Um, what happens to children who die before they are old enough to profess faith uh, in Jesus? Yeah, this is a, uh, a sensitive question because it's uh, an instance that some folks have experienced mm-hmm. uh, in their own life, in their own families. And to be honest, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about what happens to infants or children that tragically pass away before they're able to articulate mm-hmm. or confess faith in Jesus There is one instance that comes to mind uh, from the life of David that touches on this subject, and you find it in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's after David has a child with Bathsheba, and Nathan comes, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David with his sin, and David eventually uh, confesses and repents and is forgiven by the Lord. And this is where it picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He's dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead. You get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Mm. In that last verse, I will go to him, but he will not return to me, has led some theologians and biblical scholars to conclude that this is an instance where you see a covenant child dying before he's able to profess faith in God or Jesus. And you get a sense that David has an expectation and a hope that he will one day see him in glory. Mm-hmm. And so it's really the only instance in Scripture that we get that speaks directly to a child dying early, and then there's a hope from David that he will see yeah. this child one day. And there's been instances or distinctions made among theologians and biblical scholars, too, um, in this uh, scenario Uh, or they make a distinction between covenant children and non-covenant children. Let's let's pause there just for a minute. What does this mean to be a covenant child? Well, covenant child is being born into a Christian household, Mm -hmm. Uh, and a non-covenant child would be one born into a non-believing, non-Christian household. 
And you see throughout the scriptures that God not only works with individuals, but he works through families. Mm-hmm. He's a covenant-keeping God with families, with generations of people. Uh, and so it leads some to believe that if a child is born to a believing family, then they should have hope that if that child dies before he is able or she is able to profess faith, that you'll see that child mm-hmm. one day in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, that's a distinction that you can uh, pull out from Scripture. Um, I'm not sure that you can be dogmatic about it okay. because there's no uh, specific place in Scripture that says covenant children, they're in. Non-covenant children, there's no hope for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's a compelling uh, way to think about it. Sure. I think at the end of the day, you really have to lean back into the idea in the doctrine of God's election. Mm-hmm. That before the foundations of the world, God has elected a certain number of people, and he sent Jesus Christ to shed his blood for those specific people. And so we can say that those who have been covered by Christ's blood, we will see in the new heavens and the new earth. The hard part about that answer is we don't know who that is. Um, And so I think we've got to rest on God's control, on his election, and then also just rest on his goodness and his grace. Uh, I think of uh, the verse in Genesis where it says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Um, And leaning on that goodness and grace can really be um, what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll I'll end with this, um, or the last thing I'll say, and if you've got follow-ups, please ask, but babies that are born are not born innocent. Right. Um, We believe that everyone is born with a sin nature. And so if babies, when we do see them in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, it's because of God's grace uh, being extended to them, um, not because they were innocent babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really falls back on God's character. Um, It falls back on the fact that he will do what is right um, and that he will save his elect. Yes. And I think that's as far as we can go. Yeah, that's where I would always take this question as well. And it, it, it becomes a tough one because it's hard to think about. A sweet little baby being yes. what Paul calls an object of wrath, which we all are um, by our own nature. So it can it can get very tough very fast, and it can be very personal for some people. And yeah, um, yeah, and we're not sinners because we sin, right? We're sinners because we're born with a sinful nature. Uh, the curse of Adam is passed down from generation to generation. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's an important thing to to remember mm-hmm. uh, in this conversation. Um, but it's, it's so, uh, devastating and, you know, you can give a theological answer to it, um, but it doesn't assuage the grief that folks have experienced, whether it be miscarriage, Mm -hmm. um, abortion, um, child, uh, dying tragically, Mm -hmm. uh, before, um, they're able to assent or articulate a faith in Jesus. So, yeah. So there's another question that kind of dovetails a little bit with this one and it talks about, um, Basically, in the new heavens and the new earth, will, will there be babies being born? Yeah. Now, it seems to me that that's when we're in the realm of eternity and people are, um, you know, there's been the resurrection, the dead have risen, and, and uh, the new heavens and the new earth are here and people are living forever. And um, if there is also procreation, um, it would get very crowded because <laughs> there's nobody dying to be replaced. Yeah. So um, that is my very amateurish take on this. Yes. Well, what do you think? It's interesting you talk about procreation there because one of the purposes of 
um, marriage and sex is procreation specifically for the purpose of populating this world with followers of Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, that specific purpose won't be needed anymore. So it's at least worthwhile thinking about that angle. Um, the place in Scripture that I'd go to and that most folks uh, would point you to as well, I think, is Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus is talking to the Sadducees who believe that there's no resurrection, and they come and try to challenge and question him. And he replies to them that there is a resurrection. And this is what he says in verse 29 of Matthew 22. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. And so this has led a lot of folks to conclude that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will no longer be marriage, will be like the angels in heaven who are not married to one another. And if that's the case, without marriage, uh, there won't be any more procreation. Uh, And so I think that... um, To answer this question, this is probably the most clear uh, passage uh, from Scripture that gives us a glimpse into what life in the new heavens and the new earth will look like. Um, Some theologians have drawn a pretty hard line saying there's no marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Others have said, you know, Jesus is just trying to stick it to the Sadducees. He's not making a point that there's no marriage. He's making a point that there will be a resurrection. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, Uh, I think it's a little bit speculative, um, and you've got folks lining up on either side of that debate, um, and it's as clear as we kind of get. I have uh, a pastor in my past that said if he's not able to be married to his wife, he at least wants to be roommates with her in the new (laughs) heavens and the new earth. And I think that's a, a, a kind of endearing way to think about it. Um, yeah. I, I hate the idea of me and Rachel not being married. Yeah, I'm quite fond of my wife. Sure. So being in heaven without my wife would be, or, or not being married to her in heaven would be yeah. kind of a bummer. But one of the things you had to think about, too, is in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be completely fulfilled, completely satisfied yeah. um, with our relationship uh, with Jesus um, and so the need for marriage yeah, not might only, no longer be there. Not only the need for marriage in the sense of, of procreation, but the emotional need of yep. marriage of, of you know being kind of hitched to one person for life. There's no longer a need because you know all these things are sort of just common elements of grace that all people get to experience, and there won't be any need for that because we'll be in the presence of God Yes, with everything being perfect. Everything yep. will be perfected. You don't need a little taste of things. Yes. And I guess you could take it a step further, and I hope it doesn't sound uh, too um, sentimental, but we'll be married to Jesus. Um, and, I mean, we are now, but uh, I think it's a it's a symbol or a picture saying we will be completely satisfied and complete emotionally, um, relationally, spiritually with that marriage. Yeah. Um, like we should be now, but it'll be uh, full and complete in the new heavens and the new earth. Sure. Well, those are some interesting things to kind of get the gears turning. Um, the other thing we kind of wanted to talk about this week is is kind of one of the most fundamental and important doctrines in the church. And I was trying to think about, so we're going to talk about the Trinity today, spoiler. And I was trying to figure out, like, why did we decide that, that we were going to talk about this? And I think it came from the question last week about Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. and how they don't hold to the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And I think we were talking, you and me and Guillermo, after after we were done recording and um um, I, I confess that I'm, I'm sentimental to that because if you don't have someone, 
if you're not taught these things, it can be really hard to kind of just to just read read the Bible and say, boom, Trinity. Yes. Because the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible at all. So what mm-hmm. is this idea of the Trinity? Yeah, you're right. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible at all. It's something that is inferred, and uh, it's inferred more with more certainty the further along the redemptive story you move. Okay. We'll talk about that in a minute, hopefully. But just to lay uh, a definition of the Trinity out there, Christian doctrine of the Trinity holds that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as one God in three divine persons, um, these three persons are distinct, meaning that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. They are distinct persons, but they are one God. Three persons that are distinct, yet they're one substance, essence, and nature. Um, and so that's a definition of mm-hmm. the Trinity, how we understand it. It is a mystery. Um, and that's one of the hard parts about talking about it on a 25-minute podcast. It would be hard to talk about it on a lifelong podcast yeah. because it's something that we can't necessarily wrap our minds around uh, or put in a box and tie up with a neat bow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that folks have been you know, meditating on and thinking about through the centuries in the Christian church. Um, and at the end of the day, you can understand it. You can um, come to some conclusions about what the Trinity is, especially from the scriptures. But there's always going to be a sense of, wow, I cannot wrap my mind around that. Yeah, there's so many analogies that people will try to throw out there all the time. But ultimately, each one of these analogies breaks down at some point because it tries to discuss an, an eternal God that we can't fully comprehend in very kind of material terms. And that yes. just sort of breaks down very quickly. I've heard of the uh, like ice water vapor mm-hmm. analogy and the different sides of the cube analogy, sure. but all of these break down yeah. pretty quickly because it, as soon as you start talking about ice, well, ice isn't water. It's just ice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's water, right? But, and that's kind of where they try to make this analogy, but it is ice. And if you're holding the ice, then you don't have the water, but yep. with the Trinity where the, the father is, the son and the spirit are also, even though they're distinct and yes, I'm confusing myself already. Well, and you're, you're making a great point. This is where a lot of heresies yes. will arise. Yep. Um, and so uh, when you start to uh, articulate um, the doctrine of the Trinity it gets it gets difficult because you got to be very careful with your words, yeah, um, and how you articulate your thoughts, and that's why I think it's so great to uh, look at the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about the Trinity. We could talk about the the history of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, but by three twenty five at the Council of Nicaea, that's where you see uh, the Apostles' Creed mm-hmm. um, being formulated, and in that. Uh, document in that creed, you've got probably the earliest um, uh, kind of church-wide yeah. document that they put forth uh, articulating their belief in the Trinity. You can see this in the Nicene Creed when we say it from time to time in church, where it really emphasizes the uh, begotten and not made and Jesus being of one, sub- one substance yes. with the Father. Um but we could we could nerd out on this for sure. a long time. But uh, what does the Bible actually say about the Trinity? Yeah. Well, if you start in the Old Testament, you uh, it's almost B.B. Uh, Warfield, um, theologian, uh, said that uh, the Old Testament is kind of like a dark lit 
a room um, or even a dark room um, that you can't see much of the furniture that's in that room, uh, but you bump up against it from time mm-hmm. to time. And then in the New Testament with the incarnation and the um, the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the lights are kind of flipped on yeah. and you get a chance to see the room for what it always really was. Yeah. And I, I like that. Uh, illustration for how to think about um, the Trinity as it's revealed throughout the scope of redemptive history in the scriptures. But in the Old Testament, it's interesting. Um, You do get a very clear sense that um, God is uh, uh, one. Um, The Jews believed uh, uh, they were monotheistic people, Um, but you get a a sense uh, from time to time uh, there's there's a hint of kind of a complex monotheism in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is you see from time to time um, the Godhead speaking and referring to himself with plural pronouns. Yeah. Uh, and so specifically, you see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, when God creates man, he says... Uh, or when um, Genesis 3, verse 22, when man falls into sin, God says, the man has now become like one of us. Mm. Um, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, where <clears throat> God goes and confuses the languages of the people at the Tower of Babel, he says, let us, let us go down and confuse their language. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, um, he's talking uh, to Isaiah and says, whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? Mm. And so theologians have uh, said that this is a statement of self-deliberation, meaning that there's a conversation happening in the Godhead between the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in these passages where they're encouraging one another. It would be almost like me saying, all right, Michael, let's get out of bed, um, where they're having a conversation between themselves. One God, three persons. And so those are kind of the earliest um, uh, senses that you get um, that God uh, is unique uh, in a plural way, um, plurality of persons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the conclusion is that the Old Testament certainly doesn't necessarily teach Trinitarianism, um, but it does hint at Trinitarianism. Yeah. And then you move into the New Testament and the lights are flipped on. Let me ask you a silly question before we go further. So... When we think about the Godhead, Father, Spirit, Son, three and one, having this sort of internal holy deliberation that's going on, in that context in the Old Testament, before the incarnation of Christ, is the Son a, a, a like Jesus was a human mm-hmm. and he he was ascended into heaven in human form. So sure. what's going on with the Son prior to the incarnation? Because it's really easy to think about. The Holy Spirit, obviously yes. being spirit, and God the Father as sort of a spiritual entity. Yes. But um, the the Son, we always think of him as Jesus, like flesh and blood. Yes, real time, real space. Sure. What about before the incarnation? That's a great question. Uh, we believe that God is spirit, yeah. and so before the incarnation, before God the Son took on flesh, uh, he would have been spirit, mm-hmm. okay. um, just like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Um, we believe that he took on flesh, uh, but he did not give up his divinity mm. in doing that. Um, and uh, and we also believe that he he retains his physical body. Uh, 
mm-hmm. um, while still retaining his divinity. Even today, yeah. he is at the right hand of God the Father. And when we see Jesus in heaven, we will see a human person, yeah. um, but he's 100% human, 100% God. Um, and so um, before he took on flesh, we would say that he was spirit, mm-hmm. um, just like the Father and the Spirit are. Gotcha. Okay. Well, what about the New Testament? I think yeah. we're about to go there. New Testament. Uh, one other thing I mentioned about Genesis, not only in Genesis 3, but when God creates humanity, says, let us create man in our image. Um, and so that's another instance where you see a, a plural pronoun being used as God refers to himself. But in the New Testament, like I said, the lights are flipped on, and you see a number of Trinitarian formulas uh, from the New Testament. Uh, like we said, the word Trinity is never used. Um, but we do get a sense that um, that the idea of a trinity is very much in play. Specifically, you see it at the baptism of Jesus, uh, where Jesus goes down into the water. He comes back up. You hear the voice of God the Father um, saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then you see uh, a dove descending upon Jesus, um, which is the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. coming upon him. Um, and so the three uh, persons of the Trinity there at work in his baptism. You also see at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, it says this, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Other places that you see this, and I'm flipping to them as I speak, so... You need to be patient, I guess. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, verses thirteen and fourteen. Um, this is what it says. Uh, Paul says, "We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ." All three persons mm-hmm. of the Trinity being mentioned in those two verses. In 1 Corinthians, and this will be the last one I mention, although there's more we could go to. Um, in 1 Corinthians, um, let me get there real fast. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, here's what you read. Um, Paul says, Now there, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So there you've got a mention of Lord, God, Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are Trinitarian formulas being used throughout the New Testament, not just in the Gospels, but as Paul describes, it encourages the churches as they're growing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a whole other list of Trinitarian formulas that you can see in the letters of Paul um, throughout the New Testament. Um, But uh, like I said, you get a sense that the, 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 the light, um, switch has been flipped mm-hmm. in the New Testament, um, and there's more flesh being put on the bones of what you suspected from the Old Testament. Um, and so, yeah. In each one of these examples, though, that you gave, it emph- uh, I'm thinking especially of the baptism of Jesus example. Mm-hmm. You had all three persons of the, the Trinity di- distinct, and so it would be very easy to look at that and, and say, well, that's very polytheistic, that there's these sure. three distinct entities so how do we get from there to they're also one? Yeah, well, the fact that there are three persons um, and the way that we get to the the fact that they're one God is 
there's many times uh, throughout the Bible um, that speaks about God as one. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the most important is back in Deuteronomy, uh, the Shema, yeah. um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so um, kind of the watershed belief of Old Testament people and also New Testament people uh, that find their story in the Old Testament. And so God is one, um, but he is um, working in these three different persons. Um, and so it's one of those things you hold in tension. You're right. It does seem polytheistic. What are we doing here? Well, we worship one God. The God, mm-hmm. our Lord, is one, um, but he manifests himself. He is three persons in one God. Okay. Um, <laughs> and your face is kind of like right now, this is probably what it should look like. like wait <laughs> this a can hurt your brain yeah. very, very quick. <laughs> I don't get it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it is helpful to talk about, uh, okay, so God the Father um, I don't think we need much um, explanation to um, to come to the conclusion that he is mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the deity of the Son, for instance, the second person of the Trinity, you see throughout uh, the Gospels that Jesus bears divine titles. Mm-hmm. He's called the Lord. Um, he's called the Son of Man, which is actually a divine title, um, not a human title. Mm-hmm. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel says, And I saw one like the Son of Man basically on par with God, um, saw one like a son of man. And it's a divine title that Jesus uses for himself. Um, You also see that uh, Jesus is called God. Um, Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Let me flip there real fast um, because it's it's so explicit in this little verse. Uh, Romans 9, 5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Well, there, you, there you go. Um, and so that's Paul basically saying the Christ is God over all. Um, but Paul was a monotheistic man. Mm-hmm. He believed in one God. Um, you also see that Jesus possesses the characteristics and attributes of God. He's got grace, truth, glory. He's eternal, Colossians mm-hmm. chapter 1, verse 17. Um, he's preexistent, John chapter 1. Um, you know, the Word was with God mm-hmm. uh, before the creation of the world. Um, he's unchangeable. You see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Um, not only that, Jesus does the work of God. Um, he is there at the work of creation, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Um, he is responsible for the work of providence, the work of redemption, the work of consummation and bringing all things together at the end times. Um, and then also on top of that, Jesus as a person uh, receives worship due to God. Angels worship him at his birth in Luke chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 1, you see angels worshiping him. The blind man and Thomas worship him during his earthly ministry, and he does not tell them to stop. Um, And we see that all are going to bow before him um, at the end times. Mm -hmm. Every tongue will confess. um, Every knee will bow. Um, And so there you you see the deity of the Son pretty clearly through the New Testament. Yeah. and we can talk about the DD of the Holy Spirit too, yeah, unless, yeah, unless I'm putting you to sleep. Nope. Um, <laughs> um, you get what you pay for here, right? <laughs> um, and so uh, the deity of the Holy Spirit, though, um, when I think about the Holy Spirit, it is, it, it's the more difficult person of the uh, Godhead for me to wrap my mind mm-hmm. around. Um, I think that it's important to say that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. Right. And so when we uh, refer to the Holy Spirit, we're not referring to an it, we're referring to a he. Uh, He is a person. Um, And 
we've mentioned this in the past, but I love it, uh, to think of the Holy Spirit as the shy person of the Trinity, uh, meaning that his job is to shine uh, a light, to shine glory, to shine beauty, to, to point our eyes towards Jesus. Um, and that's where Pentecostal charismatic churches get in trouble. They worship the Holy Spirit, which is worthy of, he's worthy of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's sent to really shine a light on the beauty of Christ yeah. and to lead us to him. And so he's the shy member of the Trinity. That's what some people say because he points to others, not himself. Um, and so there's really kind of a difficulty in understanding who he is. There's kind of a scarcity of explicit biblical revelation compared to the Father and the Son. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's really an absence of concrete imagery sometimes uh, when it comes to the Spirit. But you see the personhood of the Spirit in the New Testament. Um, and where you see his deity is this. He's equivalent with God. Um, to say Holy Spirit is to say God. You see this in Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 3 to 4. I'll pull that up real fast, and this will be the um, the one um, reference I give uh, for this point. So um, I won't. I won't uh, pepper you with uh, tons of Bible verses, but it says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God, Mm. um, likening the Holy Spirit with God himself. We also see that the Holy Spirit possesses characteristics and attributes of God. He's got knowledge. He's got power. He's eternal. He performs the works of God um, at creation. The the Spirit is hovering over uh, the formless void in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Um, he is the one that um, basically uh, inspires men uh, to write Scripture under his influence. Um, and then also he's responsible for sanctification, um, for growing people in holiness. And so you see the Spirit associated with the Father and Son in ways which only one like them could be associated, like the baptism and the threefold name. Um, you see the benediction in Second Corinthians chapter 13 talking about um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so all three have a, a part in salvation. Sure. Um, and so... You know, conclusion, Holy Spirit's a person, not an impersonal force. Uh, He is God, thus to be worshipped and revered, although his goal is to point to Jesus. And he should not be thought of as inferior to the other two members of the Trinity in any way. Um, His subordination belongs to the history of Mm -hmm. redemption. There's an economical subordination. Uh, The Son subordinates himself to the Father's will. The Spirit subordinates himself lovingly so that he can glorify the Son. Uh, And it's a really beautiful dance that the Trinity plays Mm -hmm. with one another through Scripture that you see. So I know we're probably bumping up on whatever arbitrary time limit we set for ourselves that we never really hold to anyway. Sure. But um, <laughs> do you want to quickly go through the the roles and responsibilities of each person of the Trinity? This is where, for me, it kind of helps to solidify yeah. the sort of three and one distinct but the same yeah. sort of thing. It, it can be helpful. Um, and the way I think about it in salvation is God the Father loves and elects mm-hmm. Um, and so before the foundation of the world, he predestines some for salvation. Um, God, the son comes in order to accomplish redemption. Mm-hmm. He is um, the redeemer. He yeah. is the redeemer. Um, and then God, the Holy spirit comes and applies the redemption that Jesus has purchased on the cross and through his resurrection Actually works the faith in yes. the heart of the elect so that they can 
have faith and then by faith attain the grace through Christ. Yep. And I think that's a great way to think about how um, the Trinity works in tandem mm-hmm. when it comes to salvation. And I guess I'll end with this. This comes from some of my seminary notes, and it's uh, a paragraph, um, but I love it. And if you can hang with me, I think it's got a payoff in the end. Um, but it says this. One of my Old Testament professors, Dr. Mike Williams, writes this. In the Old Testament, the divine name par excellence is Yahweh. Yahweh is personal. He's the covenant Lord, the one who enters into personal relationship with his people. Yet, which one of the persons is Yahweh? We might be tempted to say that the Father is Yahweh, but there is really no reason for us to do this. I suggest that Yahweh is the entirety of the Godhead. God does not choose to reveal himself in a fully Trinitarian way until the Incarnation and Pentecost. Certainly, God has always been triune, but the full revelation of his Trinitarian nature was not made known until the New Testament. The divine name in the Old Testament is Yahweh, the divine name in the New Testament is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I, I love that way to think about it. The divine name, God's name, is now Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wow. Very interesting stuff. Well, we will be back next week with another topic that we haven't determined yet. So we'll do that probably after we get off the line here. <laughs> yes. But um, as always, shoot we, from the hip. Yes. Yeah. We could just, you know, banter about, you know, <laughs> The Stanley Cup Finals or hey. something. Um, anyway, we won't do that. Don't worry. Tune in next week. And uh, if you have questions, as always, we want to take some time, offer a response to those. You can email them to michael at trinitygracesa.org or text them to 210-920-0783. This has been TGC Midweek. Until next time, we'll see you later.